We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Stay with Sons Fidelium coming out you with a almost like a finally publishing video, a book review of a book in the making for maybe three years. You've heard about it in sermons, lectures from some guy named Father Ripperger or just some priest in Hobunk, Colorado, somewhere you might have heard of him once or twice. Anyway, joining again, once again, Father Ripperger, how you doing? Uh, not too bad, actually. Not too bad. Been busy, but good. Congrats. So, congrats just... on the publishing, by the way. Yeah, this uh, this particular uh, book that's uh, that's available now for the lay people, um, which we can we'll talk towards the end, is um, I think it's going to be really helpful for them. So, so like any other main event like boxing, you're going to get some lightweight fox, uh, boxes first. So, Father, you got some new products in the uh, on the press company. One's yeah, not yeah, quite new; it's do... just a new variation. Yeah, we kind of got to do the pre-show, you know, as they always say. <laughs> Are on the warm-up band for the. Uh, this is the warm-up <laughs> band for the big. But anyway, so the first. Later. <laughs> yeah, so the first thing is, is that we finally got the deliverance prayers for the lady in faux leather, so it's um, it's much more durable. The page uh, it's exactly the same as the other one. Um, it's uh, you know built a lot better. They did the company that printed it is the same one that prints the faux leather stuff for tan because I talked to them about it. Um, it was a little more costly, but this company does uh, very good work. Um, I was just telling you before we got on here that people might complain that this is uh, the cost is forty four ninety five, and the uh, the cost of printing this is five times it is for regular paperback. But it's uh, built and it's going to last, so people can buy it once and then they're uh, done. But the actual um, cost is uh, only three times so we kind of keep it as low as we can there's a kind of a as a publisher there's a there's a that's a really difficult thing ryan grant and i were talking about this one time um ryan from media to express but we were talking about this how setting the price on a book is very difficult because you want to keep it reasonable so that people can actually afford it the problem is is that people um like booksellers and stuff like that they want 50 percent off so you're always trying to find that margin where you're still kind of, you know, at least breaking even or making a little bit of money off the thing if the people that are, are selling it are getting their 50% off. So um, ironically, if if I didn't have to deal with that element of it, the book would probably only be like $25 or $30, but there it is. Okay. So that's the first, that's the first thing. And I, people, I, the reason I actually did this uh, Deliverance Prayers and Faux Leather is because people kept complaining and I would go to do conferences at places and People would show up with their books and they were completely tattered, right? Yeah. So, so that's why I would do it. Um, the next few things is that we have a number of books on our on our website that um, that are already in paperback, but we managed to get them in hardback finally. So one of them, the first one, is Topics on Tradition. So this one's in hardback. Uh, we would have had it out about two to three months ago, but 
uh, something that people should be aware of. It's actually the reason why the priest version of this book on um, uh, on uh, Dominion, which is the name of the uh, lay version, the priest version, um, I won't even get the books and probably until towards the end of April. And the reason being, um, which I know you're aware of, Steve, but um, many of the viewers might not be, is the fact that what happened was is that um, during that whole COVID crisis and everything, and since a lot of the paper was coming from China, the um, paper availability is very low. So there's a supply chain issue. And so the company I, I worked through said that they had to actually figure out how many, how much paper they needed for a specific book. And that's all their supplier would permit them to order. So, um, they, so each time they printed, they had to had tell them we need this amount. You know, in the past, they would just buy boatloads of it. But apparently there's a massive supply chain issue in relationship to that. So, um, but uh, I'm sure Biden's working hard on that one. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, some Milo's topics on. Trying to say all the keywords to get us booted today. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I haven't talked about the jab, so you know. So there it is. Okay, so topics on tradition. Uh, the next one is uh, Lincoln and Omaha sermons. This is what the, the first set of sermons I ever did when I was first ordained. This is for the first two to three years I was a priest, but it's now in hardback. We had it in softback. Uh, the principle of the integral good. This is one of them that's been selling actually pretty good more recently because of the fact that the um, people are starting to realize that we have a big problem um, in regard to, uh, you know, even people in the Vatican suggesting certain things are morally okay when in point in fact it doesn't meet the principles. Uh, the morality of the exterior act. There's kind of a humorous story behind this one. This is, uh, this is basically my doctoral dissertation. Well, a guy ordered it. Uh, and so this one's now in hardback. So the guy ordered it, and um, <laughs> it wasn't when he's ex expecting it. So he basically wanted to return it. And we basically said, well, unless it's damaged, we can't honor that, because otherwise it would turn into a lending library, right? So um, so we declined that. But that's, uh, you know, the interesting thing about this book, The Morality of the Exterior Act, is that in the United States, it hasn't had that much distribution and academically hardly anybody's paying attention to it. But in a strange sort of way, in the Portuguese speaking countries, it's been selling like hotcakes. And they're actually, um, they haven't made a translation of this, but they're in the process of translating a bunch of my stuff. So huh. there's, uh, but I found that interesting that it was down there that they found um, the distinctions I make useful, especially when you're making the, uh, you know, some of the moral distinctions, especially in relationship to um, capital punish, all the areas that we're dealing with, capital punishment, the vaccination, all that. So it's uh, hopefully that's good. Huh. And then the next one, before we get to the the, the star attraction, which is uh, on divine tradition, Ryan Grant at Media Express was uh, printing this um, for me, only because I just wasn't set up to do the hardbacks. So we now have the hardbacks available in uh, on divine tradition. Um, it was in the last interview I made the observation that, you know, even people like Kangar and Schilebex would nod to uh, to Franzling in his writing of this book because this was the book that was actually written on tradition. And so I tell people, if you want to know what the tradition is and you want to get into depth in it, that's the one. The other one is that there's uh, it's the uh, tradition in the church by Aegis is yes. basically a a much, much simpler version of this. But this one gives you the depth that you really want to know, especially if you're going to study tradition. In fact, a lot of times when I hear guys starting to uh, uh, wax uneloquently about uh, 
about the tradition, I'll ask them, have you read this book? Well, if they haven't, I'm just like, that. then, you know, maybe it's time to uh, sit down and be quiet, you know? So, um, but anyway, so those are, that's the initial stuff that books we already had, but they're in different formats. And uh, so some people might like the hardbacks and then the, the faux leather of the deliverance purse, I think would be uh, really good. Let me unwrap the book of the year right here. I got it came in, it's all wrapped up. Let me... <laughs> For safety yeah, protocol, <laughs> uh, we, have, we couldn't have, we can't afford paper, so that's all I had. <laughs> there no you menu. go. Yeah, a very small book. You can read it overnight, really. Uh, yeah, it's five hundred and sixty-five pages. <laughs> this, uh, although you know, it the the reason I started, to, I decided to write the book originally. Well, there was two reasons that I decided I'm going to start writing on this. One is for the longest time, having been an exorcist, you know, they say in the ritual, they said that you should read the approved authors. Well, the difficulty with reading the approved authors is that they're smattered historically over about four or five hundred years. And that doesn't include, you know, bits and pieces from the fathers and stuff that you want to pick up. But these were books and most of them are in Latin, which is okay because I'm fluent in Latin. But it was one of those things where it just it was smattered all over this. And so you only get a sense of the complexion of how this stuff works you know a, a coherent or synthetic knowledge of this thing by reading all these authors and i thought you know at some point someone needs to write a manual that you can just hand to a priest who's going to become an exorcist look this is this is what you want to read this will give you the background the theological background for this um a lot of the priests that we do in fact they just came from a training for exorcists um where i train i train other um, priests and a lot of them basically complained that they didn't get anything in the seminary about uh, demonology or any of that. And so um, I decided, you know, I'm going to write this book for the priests, which should be out. We'll do another one for that. But, you know, it'll probably be about right at the beginning or of May before it's really available. But, um, and that's providing that we can get it shipped to our location, you know. The, <laughs> yeah, there's but, a story um, behind the first shipment, right? <laughs> Um, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is so hilarious, this thing. Okay, so I order the proof copy. So this is the proof copy. So it, see, if you see, it says not for sale. Let me get it over here. Yeah, it says not for sale. Okay, so this is just a proof copy for you to see. This is what the book is actually going to look like. So the one that you have is the normal printed copy. So when uh, when when I first ordered it, first of all, because of the paper situation and because of HR difficulties, the suppliers are having a hard time getting the stuff out in a timely manner. In the past, when you would order a book, um, a proof copy, they would ship it within two days and you'd have it within a week. And then you could take a look at it. And if there's problems, you could make adjustments and then put it out. So, um, but not with this book. They, they told me it'd be two to three weeks before I would get it. So, um, and then, so it was, it was about just about two and a half weeks, but they shipped it. And then what happened is the book gets sent to the, um, the book gets sent uh, to me. And then I get this text telling me from uh, UPS that the book had been delivered. So I go and they, it, it, where we live, we live rurally in our society. And so I have to walk all the way around the house because you just never know where they're going to leave our packages, right? So we, I'm walking all around. It's not there. Usually when they say that and it's not there, it's at the post office. So the next day I stop in at the post office and they say, no, we never got it. So, um, cause it's just, just a little dinky post office. So we, everybody knows each other. So, uh, they never got it. 
Then shortly after I talked to the post office, I get a text that said there's been a problem in the shipment. The package has been damaged. The contents have been discarded and the noter and the seller notified. So it almost sounds like, you know, somebody dropped the thing, something happened. They took the contents out, threw it out, and then sent the thing back to the, the seller. I'm just like, you, you, this is from the, you can't make it up file, right? <laughs> so then I have to reorder the thing again. And then I get it about 10 days later. Um, and then I was kind of sweating it because I was, it was, it didn't seem like it was going to get here before I actually left for this last uh, conference. So it was going to be delayed yet another week, but we finally got it out. But the shipping on that is uh, always, in fact, as an exorcist, I have to constantly be praying against them messing around with my deliveries because they'll ship it. I'll give you a perfect example. I ordered a set of books for um, our distribution center and um, it used to be in one location. The person that ran it is in one, what used to live in one location but um, moved to another location. And so they, I sent, had it sent to the location where the distribution is done. And that's, that's when I clicked on Amazon and said, okay, this is where I want it to go. As soon as it ships, they notify me it's being sent to where the person lived before. That address is nowhere on. I call Amazon, the guy on the other side, I don't know how he got sent there because this guy's address is nowhere on here. So uh, like 40 boxes of book get shipped up there. Fortunately, UPS, I got to give them that, you know, I, I haven't had my, my experience with UPS has been a mixed bag, but they, uh, what they did is they actually, uh, just realized this isn't where this boxes go. They contacted the person doing the distribution and then they said, this is the address. And so they shipped them down there. So, but anyway, I was going to say, you're probably used to things like that happening. Yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, there, I consecrate all sorts of aspects of my exterior life only because of the fact that the demons are constantly, uh, constantly messing with it. In fact, it's kind of funny because one of our priests that's um, he's heading back now because we have a series of sessions for the next three weeks. And he's uh, I, I, I'm always a little nervous whenever my flights go well that, you know, they go off without a hitch. Well, his didn't. They bumped him from his original flight. Then they said they can't put him on the next flight. So they're going to put him on a flight that had to go all the way to Salt Lake City and back. And then he wasn't going to get here until the evening. And even though he had been at the airport since like five in the morning. So it was one of those. And uh, that that used that's what it was like for me when uh, in the past. But so to get to the book, I suppose we can talk a little yes. bit about the contents. Yeah, there's a few things in there like angelology, demonology. Yeah, so the first chapter is just angelology. It's um, what an angel is, how their how their faculties function, their intellect, their will, um, the choices that they made. Um, their the what we the what we call the three instances. That is when you know there were three first series of things that occurred with them um, that basically determined that determined uh, or that they made their own determination of whether they're going to serve God or not. Um, it was interesting because I actually had a chance doing the part on the avum which most people will when they read it you'll see what that word actually means but it was when i was doing that research that i found out that it was suarez who was the one who messed up this whole discussion because you'll read some of the more popular authors uh like portea subscribes to this to the suarezian theory about this so saint thomas says that there are three instances where they were created 
then they made their choice and then they were immediately punished or damned, right? Or uh, damned or they got to see God face to face. So it's, it happens in a series of sequences very quickly. And Suarez had read secondary authors of St. Thomas and only the Summa. Well, St. Thomas's understanding of the Avum is primarily parsed out in his um, in his discussion on Peter Lombard's sentences. And so it's there that you actually find out that this is how the Avum is structured and this is how it works. So Suarez misunderstood how the Avum worked. And so he was the one that came up with this idea that, oh, well, they were created and then they kind of hung around for a little while, looked to see what was happening. And some of them made decisions and some kind of watched. And that's not at all what the uh, common opinion of theologians has always been. So, um, but anyway, so I had a chance to go into that. Natural law, the angels have a natural law, hierarchy of the angels, um, demonology, um, their intellect and their will, how it works, their moral tests, the punishments that they, uh, that they experience in the priest version, which is about three, almost 300 pages longer, 280 pages longer. Um, I actually go into the 13 things which cause them pain. Uh -huh. So, but you, I do have some of them in here. So it's actually a, kind of an interesting thing. So um, structure of authority, that's the one that's really going to get the discussion going. Yes, yes. Because it's in there where I deal with Lozano's uh, Unbound and its methodology, which uh, I make clear in the book that I'm not against it and his, his methodology entirely. There's just a couple of things that need to be adjusted based upon what we know um, theologically about the nature of authority. So different kinds of diabolic influence in general. And then I go into, um, you know, uh, oppression, obsession, and possession. Uh, the possession chapter is, um, let's take a look. It is about 90 pages or so. Uh -huh. In the um, priest version, originally it was 208. When we redid the formatting, without losing any of the content, it's now down to 175. And so what we removed is a lot of the diagnostic stuff because we didn't want people doing the CSI thing, which I think you've heard me say before, yeah. where they read the book and then they go replicate it, right? Yeah. So then they, they we call it the CSI effect because the, the police or the law enforcement would complain that people would watch these, the, the show CSI, how these guys were covering their tracks and this and that. And so when they would commit a crime, they'd try and do the same thing. Um, <laughs> Going to all sorts of different stuff in relationships, possession, diabolic subjugation, that's making a pact with the devil. Uh, diabolic infestation, such as in houses and things. I also deal a lot with, in the lay version with um, wounds and healing about how demons can cause people to get wounded. They can pick at people's wounds. Um, they can block people from healing and that, and what, you know, wound is, how you heal, generally speaking, but then also um, how to keep demons out of it. Satanic ritual abuse, which we're going to see is drastically on the rise. When I was first an exorcist, you rarely, very, very rarely came across people who suffered from satanic ritual abuse. But um, unbeknownst to most people, in the 1980s in this country, there was a drastic uptick in satanic activity and satanic ritual abuse. And so um, we're now, and so in the last 10 years or so is when we're starting to see those people. And part of that has to do with um, disassociative identity disorder, um, which I don't deal with in this. I deal with it in the priest version, but basically it used to be called multiple personality disorder. So the Satanists learned how to, um, that may be kind of an interesting kind of a bit of a history. Historically, between the, eight, the beginning of the 1800s until about 1930, the Satanists began to discover this psychological mechanism that if you 
traumatize a person to a certain level and cause a certain pain a certain level you can actually fracture their personality and then from that you can program these parts uh what these what they call them parts or alternates you can program these things and then they would do it with children usually about uh, the optimal time to do it with children is sometime between four and six up to uh before they go through puberty you can still do it after that but it's much easier to do it then and you because people can't process it psychologically so they'll split the person, the child's personality, program one of the alternates to be very compliant and actually participate in the rituals. And so the kid doesn't even know he comes out of the ritual and doesn't even know what he's been doing. Right. So um, but we started seeing. a. Um, so then after that. But anyway, so we deal with a, a satanic ritual abuse and, um, you know, what what some of the signs of it are. And we've the, part of the that we just have seen a drastic uptick in it now because. In um, with DID, what happens is through this uh, satanic ritual abuse, they induce DID. There's a specific historical personal arc that people will go through. So they're first programmed and then they become very high functioning so that all the way up until about the age of 35, especially in women, they're very high functioning, even though they're programmed. And even in the programming, they're very proficient. Um, the person in its execution of its programming. But then from 35 to 45 is a very distinctive time frame in, in people's lives. That's when people start to break down psychologically. And that's when you start to see people um, uh, take a dive. So um, psychologically that have been, that have undergone this. And when they start going down the other side, um, very often they end up committing suicide, right? You know, sometime in the between 40 and 43, which is a very common thing that you'll actually see. But anyway, so uh, then general methods of combat, um, you know, prayer, fasting, how these things work, how to deal with the combat itself, because a lot of people, you know, they get attacked diabolically. And so, or even what the complexion of what an attack even looks like, and then how they can actually deal with that. Uh, sacraments, sacramentals. Um, all sorts of different sacramentals. Um, and then that pretty much concludes that particular part. There is a lexicon at the back that might be helpful for people um, because it gives a variety of different definitions. So when you start reading through this thing and you come across the word cogitative power, you can just look it up in the back and find out what that means. So it's just a gigantic so book, book on it. Basically an introduction to spiritual warfare, which is, was it Sung Tzu says, uh, if you know your enemy and you know yourself, then you have a higher chance of winning. Yeah, exactly. And that's what this, that's what this is ultimately designed, uh, uh, designed to do. I did have a priest who complained to me at one point. This is, this was over about a year ago before this even came out that he didn't think it was good that all these people were putting out all these books on the Dybok influence because it was just causing trouble. So I started asking him um, questions and basically it boiled down to um, the CSI effect, which I think was a legitimate complaint. But the other part of it was too, is he was complaining because it created work for him. So now he had to do, he had to bless more sacramentals and people were taking this stuff seriously. And then he'd find out that one of their parishioners was having diabolical oppression. So we'd have to help pray with them and stuff. So this was, um, this was uh, his complaint. So when I put this out, it's more doctrinal in the sense it gives you a structure and understanding of how this stuff works. There is some practical stuff towards the end where it says, this is how you engage in it. So I tried to keep away from any sensationalism or anything like that. So, um, well, especially with but, the angels, it's heavy with St. Thomas, right? Yeah, that important fact, really, if you look at the history of theology or angelology, that um, there were a few saints that had written about it uh, up until then. Um, but it was St. Thomas who finally did the final synthesis and got it all together. And then from that point on, 
um, pretty much everybody, except for a few of the Franciscans, pretty much everybody um, was, uh, was Thomistic in their understanding of this. The other thing is, it kind of comes out a little bit in this book. It's more so in the priest's book, but it comes out a little bit in this book. When I read, because um, I, I searched St. Thomas's entire corpus on this, on these discussions, the topics of discussion, to see what he had, had to say. And I, some, I, I told, when I got towards the end of researching him, I started to wonder if he hadn't himself done some exorcisms, because his understanding of the psychology of how demons think and function was extraordinarily accurate in compa- uh, when uh, compared to what my experience with them I thought man these things just line out almost perfectly and so when you read his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences there's things that he says that you're just like you know if you if you didn't have if you didn't if you didn't have a lot of experience you probably wouldn't have seen that and therefore written about it theologically but um he does get a lot to the psychology of how they function which there is a lot of that in here um, so it's something which I think would very much benefit the lay people to understand that, because if you know the psychology of how demons um, function, you also get a sense of how they attack and how you can repel them. Yeah, one of your series that a lot of priests talk about is the Wounds and Healing series. And yeah. I saw that chapter and I'm going, I'm assuming, I haven't read it yet, is it's more in-depth than the, ser- than the four-part series that's on the channel right now or on your site. Um, yeah, that is yeah, that is correct. It's also much. It's it's uh, now one thing I should mention. This book is a quasi-academic book. It, I think your average layman, with a little bit of effort, can still read it and get and get through it without uh, you know missing or not being able to follow what's being said. But it's the uh, the stuff on wounds and healing is a little bit more of an academic approach rather than just kind of a popular approach. So it does include more. It also goes into details. It's precisely which faculties the demons attack, what they're doing to those faculties to maintain the wounds and to pick at the wounds, to increase the wounds, or to even mimic the wounds, because they can actually either be the cause or actually mimic wounds. Because like, you've seen people who, if they, they come off as being wounded, but then you find out it's just it's just a ploy that the demon's doing to get you to go around a rabbit hole and waste your time. So yeah, it is a bit more in-depth in that sense. You may have already asked, answered this because of the St. Thomas question, but... Uh... Being what you've been doing for all, your, most of your priestly life, reading what you're doing, the, being in the game, what was there something that just came out like, I did not know this. This is very interesting. Like, What's the most interesting thing you found in your research? <laughs> um, you mean about the demons? Yeah, demons or angels. Um, I think the two things, well, there are two things is that in, in my work, I had noticed that demons or angels, but, but primarily the demons, you'd see in the demons the most because that's what you're dealing with. They, they actually have a structured, under, uh, uh, they have inclinations towards very specific things, and, as time, and it's very structured. And as time went on, I began to realize that they have a natural law, just like we do. And I started parsing it out in my own mind, about, well, they've got the first category of natural inclination, because they want to conserve their being as it is, you know, and they don't want to hurt, they don't want to suffer, which is part of that. And then they also, they're intellectual, but their minds are structured a very specific way and i began to realize that they have a natural law too the only thing that i didn't quite figure out was the second category of natural inclination and um it was uh but i started to kind of sort it out as i started reading saint thomas's discussion of the angels in the um 
the, the sentences, the commentary on the sentences, it's in there that he starts going into that the demons have the first category of natural inclination, the natural law. And I begin to realize even he rec- that he was basically writing that they have a natural law, just like we do. It's slightly modified for the but for us, the second category of natural inclination is uh, of our natural law is those things which we have in common with other animals. And that primarily has to do with uh, reproduction, raising of children and eating and things of that sort. Um, whereas with the with the angels, it's their assigned task is their second category of natural inclination. But the thing I was noticing is um, before I actually researched it was because they have these natural inclinations, their nature doesn't change, which is what the theologians had always said. And so as a result of that, they still want to do those things that pertain to their natural inclination. So, for example, in one um, demon that I had, he was he was created to serve Our Lady, and so he still had that desire to serve Our Lady, while at the same time having an absolute hatred for her and not wanting anything to do with her. So it was just conflict, and he could never serve her. He couldn't do anything. He still wanted to love her because that's what he was designed for, but he was blocked because he can't do that, and so he's in this pain. So you begin to find things like that. So that, that was one of them, the natural law. And then also St. Thomas's discussion in um, uh, that helped me to piece a lot together, which I actually use in session now. It, it had to, uh, that, that even though each angel, because he rejected his assigned task, which is kind of interesting because his, who he is, is his assigned task. So when he rejects his assigned task, it's an actual act, a perfect act of self-hatred and loathing. They reject themselves. That's because they don't want this thing. So they have this hatred and self-loathing. But when they, um, but what I found interesting in St. Thomas in relationship to this, um, uh, to the uh, assigned task is that he talks about how when the angels were created, they all had this understanding of who God was, what their assigned task was, who they were, um, what the reward would be if they were faithful, what the punishment would be if it wasn't. But in the context of that, they're instantaneously creating this act of knowing all those things instantly. But he said in the context of that, they see this thing that they want or could have. This, it's a, not, they don't want it yet because they haven't chosen it yet. So, because their will is indeterminate at this stage. So what they have, because it's free. So when they look at this, there's this some perfection that they want, um, he said. And so when they fall, they reject their assigned task, choose this thing. But he says also in the context of that, they know if they choose this thing, they're also uh, in that, that, that they see in that thing what Satan's temptation is what he is going to take a look at, what he, what his possible choice and outcome would be if he rejects his fine task. And in that, they see, they sign off volitionally to his sin in addition to their own. And as a result, St. Thomas says, that's why they're subordinated to him. He said, and that's also why he said, they all rejected, had their own proper sin, but in that sin was also contained a conspiring in this other sin and it totally bears out in session the demons they 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 all will admit that this thing that satan wanted they chose it too so so you know in the research you start discovering stuff the richness of the church's teaching in this regard goes into the idea of is it oversimplified to say if you just leave a good catholic life you'll pretty much be okay 
Yeah. I mean, if you're, well, there's two, there's two parts to that. Yeah. If you're leading a good Catholic life, going to mass on a regular basis, going to confession, saying your prayers, you know, following the church's laws, et cetera, and you're not committing mortal sin, your odds of getting diabolically influenced are pretty slim. The one pattern that we have parsed out in the last year, and it had primarily to do with uh, our protocol, which I didn't put in here, um, that's because only because there's a, another book coming out by Libra Cristo, who we're associated with, who's going to be including that in theirs. And then also there's the book that Father Heilman put out, which actually contains um, a kind of a structured approach to the protocol, even though it doesn't contain the protocol itself. But we, what we found is that people who follow the protocol um, that have diabolic obsession, in 90% of the cases, they don't even have to see a priest to get rid of the diabolic obsession. They just follow the protocol and it blows it out. So what we're discovering is that one of the elements that is missing from um, modern Catholic life, that even if they're leading a generally good Catholic life, the one element that's missing is discipline, spiritual discipline. They're not getting up on a regular basis, saying their prayers on a consistent time. They're not doing. They're not following a regimen. They're not doing certain things, and so as a reason, and they're not, um, you know, fasting on regular intervals and things like that. And so, as a result of that lack of discipline, that it seems seems to be the thing that the demons keep getting their foot in the door on. So, if people become very disciplined in their spiritual life, and that's the thing that Father Heilman's book is kind of ordered towards, is getting people back to a discipline. If they lead a very disciplined life then they're simply not going to have this problem. This is a key point because um, I think it's actually on um, census fidelium. There was a time where I gave that made the observation in a homily that if you just followed all of the Catholics, Catholic uh, laws of what was required for a layman. Um, and this, then basically there was no virtue you did not develop, but that's actually not true now because the disciplines have been so lax and that those um, disciplines in the past that would develop the virtues that hinge upon discipline would have been developed. And I think that's one of the reasons why there is less attacking. And so I think that people, you know, that's why I would encourage people to like this Lent or what have you, follow the church's disciplines in the past because that will give you um, that discipline um, in order to kind of climb out of the, any kind of a problem you have and keep you immune. We're also finding that people that do this discipline on a regular basis, especially our assistants who sit in on session or um, our case manager who deals with a lot of this stuff with people, he, de- he follows the protocol very closely himself. And as a result of that, he, they just don't have the attacks. That's why I'm a big uh, uh, Jocko fan because he's always preaching discipline. Like, man, if we can get him talking Catholic, we got something yes. right there. We have like a round table of all of us talking discipline and spiritual life. Bada bing. Yeah, and I think that even po- yeah, popular figures like that are starting to see that they're that the, one of the fundamental problems is people are just undisciplined. I mean, so for example, uh, you know, like Jordan Peterson, uh-huh. he says, well, if you want to get your life in order, well, the first thing is get out of bed and make your bed, which is just an elementary aspect of discipline. And so I think that people are seeing this, but the beauty of the protocol is is that it's uh, it provides people with the um, with the structure of what that discipline can actually look like. It's always so funny too, because people have diabolic obsession and then we tell them, okay, we're gonna put you on this protocol. And there's, there's always one part that they always want to negotiate on, and it's the one thing that requires the most discipline, right? Well, do I have to do it at 6 in the morning? Can I do it at like 7 or 8 when I get up? You're just like, nope, you get out of bed at 6, you know. So this is uh, – and it's funny because, like I said, you put people on it. I just don't have to see a lot of these people because they get cleaned up. 
so which is good yeah i'm just thinking back my personal training days you tell people to do xyz when they don't see you to get to where they want and they still will yes. fight you with it it happens on every level yes exactly yeah and it's it, it, and the other thing is too is even with people who might even be going to daily mass or they're going to confession regularly or they might even um, be doing certain things on a somewhat regular basis there's always an element of lack of discipline somewhere in their spiritual life and that seems to be how the demons are getting their foot in the door so on that what is some simple idea that people can just start gaining this building discipline to be able to get better in their spiritual life well there's I'll, I'll, I'll mention the four essential elements there's more to our protocol but there's four essential elements that we tell people you have to do you got to get up and you have you have to at six o'clock in the morning and you have to say the Angelus at six noon and six. You have to do it. And they're like, oh, well, but what if I'm eating? You, then you stop and you say the Angelus. Well, what you know, and it's like I said, they want to they, Well, can I say the Angelus at eight? No, it's got to be at six. So it's doing that six noon and six. So there's a certain amount of discipline that's required in that. The second one is, is we have them do the auxiliary Christian Orm prayers three times a day. Um, you don't have to do that to be a member. But we find that if people do that, again, it builds that, that consistent discipline. The one is media fasting, which is the big one. You know, Stop cruising the internet. Stop looking at your cell phone. Stop doing all this stuff that's um, deteriorating your discipline and causing spiritual dissipation. I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry. What did you say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's where people are at, right? I mean, it's just uh, – so I, I tell people, look, you know, don't – don't uh, we, so we put them on media fasting, and that's also one that people really complain about. Uh, and then the last one that we um, have them do is playing uh, Gregorian chant in the background. So if we do, I tell people if you do those four things consistently, you'll start to develop a certain level of discipline. And if you maintain it, you know that level of discipline, um, then you will basically not be attacked as much. And if you are, you've got the discipline to, to uh, fight it off. What would you tell somebody that sees it and goes, I want to get involved in this uh, demonology in a sense. I want to study that oh, more yeah. and more. Uh, yeah. more. What would well, you say to somebody like that? Well, <laughs> uh, I get that from time to time. Uh, in fact, at one time, this one person wrote me and they said, they wrote me and said, Father Ripperger, uh, I have been praying about it. And God told me in my prayer that I am to be your assistant during these exorcisms. Ah. And so I'm going to move out to Denver and Colorado. Just tell me where I need to go and be, and I'll be there. And I'm, I'm just like, yeah, that's not how these things work. In fact, what we, um, I, I always tell people, look, there's a very specific vetting process we have for people to be assistants and to do our help uh, that help us because you have to be pretty beefy spiritually before you can even um, be working on this side of things. But I tell people, look, if you first thing to do is learn more about the structure of this type of thing. And that's what the book is actually designed for. So that's part of it. But I just tell people, look at when it comes to demons, the primary thing is you don't want them in your life. Even in the case of possession, the goal is to get them out of there. So you don't want to start pursuing that or see that thing. And you'll see this from time to time. I'll come across people who are paranormal investigators, right? <clears throat> I'll tell you this one story. One time I was in Omaha and there was this case where they, the, these paranormal investigators from Omaha contacted us. And they said, we got this woman. She's being attacked. I'm not at us. So I said, okay, bring her over. So they drive over and I said some prayers. She said she felt something lifting. I didn't notice anything. But they said later that 
they had all stopped, which was good. So something must have happened. But at the end of the meeting, I just said to her, I said, could you please step out? And then I told her that, uh, I said, I'd like to talk to these two guys. And so she steps out and I told the guys, I said, uh, and there was another priest that was there that I, that was training with me. And I said, I said to the paranormal investigators, I said, you know, I highly recommend you get out of this line of work. Of course, they were shocked by it. And of course, these are the guys that are doing the saging and all that jazz and, the, and smudging and the houses and all that. So all they're doing is making it worse. But I just said, I said, look, if you walk into a house that's infested, um, you can become, you know, you could get attacked. And so one of them says, yeah, but that's why we bring you in. I said, by that time, it's too late. And so as they're walking out, I said to the other exorcists, because there's not too many kinds of possession that I can just look at and say the person's possessed. There's only like one or two. When I see it, I'm like, yeah, that there it is. Um, but uh, and that's only because of the physiological manifestations of the thing. I turned to the other uh, priest and I, and I just said, the head guy, he's possessed. Right. I've also seen this, too, with other people, lay people who do things that it's one thing if you want to pray for people you know, um, and that type of thing. But it's another thing if you want to be praying over people or doing things you shouldn't be doing. And that's what part of the chapter on authority is all about. Final thoughts for everybody out there. Uh, uh, to get the book, go to censustraciones.org. Uh, we'll have it in the show notes underneath. We'll have the Libro Cristo link underneath as well. Does Father Howman's book out yet? We'll put, the, put that under. Yeah, Father Harleman's book is it was out. We did an interview. He's already sold like the first batch of ten thousand, I think, or almost sold the first batch. Um, and actually, the book is on. Um, it's actually on Centrad Press, S E N T R A D P R E S S dot com. And so, because it's actually not on my um, website. Uh, in fact, if you go to Census Traditionis, which is my website. It'll say books, and it'll actually take you to the Centrad Press. So it's on Cent. It will be on. It's on Centrad Press, um, and um, we did order quite a bit of an inventory. So hopefully, we won't get uh, it won't get depleted too quickly. I knew that, and I still messed that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay. I do it all the time too. Uh, Father, appreciate. Any final thoughts? No, I think that's it. I appreciate you uh, letting me come on and talking about this. I think this is a book that people are really going to um, benefit from. It'll help to deepen their spiritual life and give them a better understanding of um, spiritual warfare. Sounds good. Before you go, as always, can we get a final blessing? Sure. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis Patris et Filii et Spiritus et Supervos et Semper. Amen. Thank you, Padre.